Hello and welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Deputy Personal Finance Editor Kate Bealey and this week I'll be hosting the show because we're going to talk about our top 50 ETFs list of core ETFs for your portfolio. So I'm going to be discussing some of the highlights of this year's list with Lynn Hutchinson, Assistant Director at Charles Stanley Pan Asset, who helped me compile the list along with our expert panel. And I'm also joined by personal finance editor Leonora Walters and personal finance writer Emma Adjaman. And in the rest of the show, we'll talk about a very important upcoming decision on emerging markets and global equity income. But first to our top 50 ETFs list. So this year, our ETFs span 11 categories, and they range from US equities to precious metals to government bonds. So we tried to get kind of a bit of everything in there. Now, the way I did it this year was to take last year's list, and then I asked our panel of experts whether there were any categories which should be added or scrapped. And then from that, I asked them to recommend some indices which would be good to track in each category, and ran an exhaustive list of data on ETFs tracking those to find the most liquid, the most low-cost ETFs with the lowest tracking error and trading costs. Based on recommendations this year, I decided to scrap private equity and property in order to focus more on areas where passives are better. So the general view was that areas like private equity and property were more suitable for active funds. So, Lynn, what do you think? Why are ETFs not as appropriate for these areas or or do you disagree? Do you think that, in fact, we should have kept them? Um, Private equity might not be appropriate because... (laughs) You have to look down into the benchmark and not all of the companies are fully private equity companies. There's a criteria where you have to have your main business in private equity so they could have other parts of their business doing other activities. So it may not be as appropriate, might be more suitable to um, a higher risk profile account rather than a low risk profile account. In terms of property, I still like the property ETFs. I agree that they are in some way correlated to equities and do move in that way. But the UK property has done so well over the last few years. This year hasn't done so well. Um, you know, there's ups and downs with the equities as, as they move. So I personally still like the property So you think even because I guess the criticism of those areas can be that these are quite illiquid areas and they're hard to get in and out of and hence maybe better for an active manager. I mean, do you think that, you know, in some cases that doesn't matter? It's it's just about knowing exactly what you're holding. Well, I don't think the active UK property funds have done as well as the UK REIT. Okay, interesting. So REIT's still an interesting thing to track. Um, So an area that we all felt that we liked and was good for passives is the US. And this has obviously been an area where active managers have really struggled to beat benchmarks. So we've added two ETFs there. What what do you think, Lynn? Why why is the US a good place for passives? Well, I agree. So US active funds have underperformed the benchmarks over one year, about 80%, and over five and 10 years, about 94%. Market cap weighted US equity ETFs are so cheap you can get an S&P 500 for five basis points, seven basis points. So it, it seems the right way to go for a US allocation. Okay. And do you think there are other areas, like other regions, other asset classes that particularly lend themselves to ETFs? So the, the, an MSCI world, a global equity, you can get that for 20 basis points. To go out and select an individual equity is is hard and expensive for research. So that would be good in a core portfolio. European equities, 12 basis points. You can get an ETF for that covers over 300 stocks. 
Okay, so do you think, particularly with these broader indexes then, when it's hard to know, you know, hard for a UK investor to decide what the best Brazilian stock yeah. is, for example? Yeah, and yeah. emerging markets, of course. So okay. a basket of emerging markets is, is reasonable price. Okay, so before we take a look at some of the changes we've made, I wanted to talk a bit about the way that investors should think about analysing and evaluating ETFs, because it's not an exact science, is it? And um, I looked at ongoing charge, I looked at size as a measure of liquidity, I looked at trading costs, and then also tracking error and tracking difference. And those are two measures of how well a product has tracked its benchmark. But it's not clear cut. And sometimes tracking difference can be distorted if the measure is taken at the wrong time. And sometimes something with a higher ongoing charge ends up being cheaper than another because it's more liquid. So it's, it's quite a difficult picture, isn't it? And how, how do you evaluate ETFs? Then? So, so th- there are a number of ways to look at an ETF. And just because it's got a low TER doesn't mean that it's going to track well. So um, we look at the benchmark bidding off for trading spreads. And, so that and what is that difference. for people that might not know? So what you pay for the ETF and what you can sell it for and the spread between that. So if you've got a wide spread, so for a US equity, it should be around 5, 10 basis points. If you've got a spread of 40 basis points, then it's going to take you a few years to make back that difference. So that's important to look at. Um, AUM size, the number of authorised participants who can deal, who can trade in the ETF is important as well because the more authorised participants, brokers that you have, the tighter the bid and offer spreads. Could, could retail investors see that information? So it's a bit more difficult to see on a platform and it's if that platform deals with these authorised participants. So you, it, it's important that they look at that spread before they actually buy because if there's no market makers or authorised participants offering the shares, that spread will be wide and you're paying too much or um, your proceeds are, are too low. So another way to look at um, an ETF is what, what's the weight of the top 10 holdings? So if you've got 50% in the top 10 holdings, then you're taking a big bet on those co- on those companies rather than having a more of a diversification. Okay. So, so you think the first thing is cost and then... You look at the cost and then the tracking difference. So for a US equity fund, the benchmark doesn't take account of the withholding tax, Tracy. So it takes full account of 30% withholding tax. So you'll see that a lot of the US equity ETFs outperform their benchmark on Part of that is due to withholding tax, because in reality you get a fifteen percent withholding tax. Benchmarks account for thirty percent. Okay. So you have to look at that as well, and if it's underperforming versus another one, are they treating the tax correctly within that ETF? So there's lots to look at. Also, if the ETF providers disclosing all of the information that you need. So for some derivative-based. ETFs rather than physical they have a swap spread and they pay for the um, underlying derivative some don't disclose that but you can see that in the tracking difference okay and that is why I think as general rule with these I try to pick the physically replicating ETFs which hold the assets that they own I mean do, yes. you, do you prefer those as a rule I prefer the physical um, backed ETFs yes. but especially for the developed liquid markets there's no reason really that you would want to go down a derivative contract because you do incur these other costs yes. sometimes yeah. okay so let's look at some of the ETFs we chose then and we'll start with the UK one new ETF we put in which a really large number of the panel liked and, and which has got quite a lot of, or people have been talking about it this year, has been the DBX trackers FTSE 100 equal weight. 
So, Lynn, you like this. Tell us why. Okay, so rather than um, allocating large percentage based on market cap of, of the underlying... Which is how most indexes are weighted, yes. isn't it? This, this one takes the FTSE 100, 100 shares, and at rebalance stage, it allocates 1% weight to each of them. Now, th- this can work well and also not so well. Um, it will underperform the FTSE 100 market cap ETF if the larger stocks do well and, and vice versa. If they don't do well, then this, this one will outperform the FTSE 100. So I, I, um, I'm a fan of this one. So what, but what's particularly good about it? Why, why is it a good portfolio diversifier for the UK? It's diversifying. If you've got a large weighting towards UK equities and and it's all allocated to the FTSE 100, if the large cap stocks do really bad, then you're going to have a terrible performance. If you allocate this, it sort of diversifies away from that underperformance. And because is the FTSE, the FTSE is particularly bad for this being very, very weighted towards the larger stocks, isn't it? Yes, Yes, so, I particularly mean, the banks right. well, and the oils as well. So do you end up with quite a different sector slant with this? Um, there, can be, there can be a different sector. Um, consumer services that have got 11% more in the equal weight. So if you, if you like the travel and cars and manufacturers and departments and, and you think they're going to do well, then you know it's positive to use this one. A downside could be oil and gas. So you've got less in the oil and gas sector. And if oil and gas shares do do really well, then you're going to underperform. But on the flip side, if they do badly, yeah. then this will perform well. Yeah. Okay. And it's also very low cost, which which makes it a good one. And um, now in the US, we've talked about why this is a good area for ETFs. I mean, what do you think an investor needs in terms of US exposure? What indexes are key to track? Uh, we tend to track the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ 100 is good for your technology shares as well. OK, so those are the key core ones, which we have included. But we've also included another very popular alternatively weighted product, which is the PowerShares S&P 500 High Dividend Low Volatility ETF. Now, this sounds both a bit complicated and it sounds like a dream, <laughs> high dividends, low volatility. Um, loads of people liked it. What, what's it do exactly? So it it focuses first on the dividends, so the high dividends. So it takes the top 75 stocks based on uh, on the past 12-month dividends over the year out of the S&P 500. Now, it doesn't take them all out of one sector, so it, it caps how many it takes how many stocks it takes out of each sector and then it drills down and looks at the volatility of those stocks and the end result is to take the 50 stocks with the highest dividend yield and the lowest volatility but there's no guarantee that the low vol will work it's focusing more on the on the dividend yield okay so you're getting it's not the least volatile stocks of all stocks it's the least volatile stocks which pay them the highest income. Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And how, how has its performance, its performance has been good, hasn't it? The performance has been great. So since yeah. the launch, of since May last year, it's performed around 13%, whereas the S&P 500 has been down around 1%. Wow. So it's a big difference. But over the last month, it's underperformed. And I think that's probably due to the utilities sector. So in the... Um, High div, low vol. The utility sector has got a weighting of nineteen percent, and the S and P's only got three percent. Okay. And utilities are sensitive to interest rate hikes, so yeah, so you need probably to underperform, but it's only underperformed by half a percent. 
But okay. you need to be aware of those sector differences. And I guess that is a key thing to say about some of these alternatively weighted ETFs that you do end up as a side effect with um, a very different kind of sector slant, you don't you? Do. Yeah. Which you just need to look out for. Okay. Now, I wanted to also talk about bond ETFs a little bit because this is an area which I think has typically been quite underserved by ETFs, particularly when it comes to the more innovative ones. And it's also an area where the traditional method of weighting an index by market cap works less well, doesn't it? Can, can you explain why that is? I'm, I'm not so sure that it works less well. It just takes companies with the largest market uh, bonds with the largest market cap. So there's no active selection in it. But I guess the criticism of bond ETFs, isn't it, is that your largest exposure is to the most indebted country or company. Yes. Because you, you know, you're inevitably exposed most to the biggest issuer. Mm-hmm. And that, that is why we've included one of these new Lombard ODA ETF securities alternatively weighted ETFs and you recommended one of these and why do you like this strategy can you explain what the strategy does this one looks at different fundamental um, factors and it takes economic inputs such as indebtedness size of revenues social and political stability and then the fiscal strength weight alternatives to assess the creditworthiness of the issuer so it it looks at, at those factors rather than just taking the the market cap of those. So what you're trying to do is find actually the highest quality issuers yes. rather than, and I think that's why this seemed like a particularly good problem in emerging markets where you've obviously got quite high risk mm. um, of being exposed to, to very indebted countries. Um, so that's quite an interesting new range. Um, just in terms of innovation, where do you think are the areas where we're seeing the best innovation in terms of in the ETFs and the best kind of new products? Yeah, so it's all. I think it's all focused on smart beta. So you you get new equities, the quality, the value, and they're good. But I also think there should be more focus on the fixed income smart beta ranges as well. I, I see lots of new products coming out this year on that because it is underserved in the, in the ETF providers. And you know, iShares tends to be the largest um, fixed income provider, although others are coming on the scene. But definitely smart beta products okay. on the fixed income range. Well, I mean, what would you like to see more in terms of the fixed income innovation? So um, instead of just doing it on market cap, um, I'd like to see more UK investment grade um, bond ETFs based on smart beta, particularly in the UK. Because if you've got an allocation of 40% to fixed income and you're doing it through ETFs, there's not that many to, to diversify your holdings with or even providers. So Okay, well, yeah, we've got a lot of them in the top 50 list, so definitely have a look at that. Now we're going to move on to talk about global equity income because Emma has been talking to Ben Lofthouse, manager of Henderson International Income Trust. Emma, what's the yield on this trust? What kind of income um, do you get? Yeah, the trust is currently yielding, yielding about 3.7%. And that compares to the MSCI World Index of 2.7%. So it's doing quite well. And has that been sustainable over the long term? Um, Yes, it has been quite sustainable. And the trust has been running for about five years. And in that time, it's been one of the um, better performing funds in its its sector. Um, So it's currently one of the top global equity performers in in, um, the UK. And it's also in the second quartile over three years. Okay, so where is um, where is Ben getting income from? What what does he like in terms of income stocks now? Mm. Um, he's really keen on on Europe, 
And that's an interesting area, he thinks, because actually the market is looking so cheap. Um, and, you know, he, he actually thinks that growth is coming through in Europe. But um, many investors still feel that it isn't. And that's one of the reasons why you're getting a lot of cheap valuations. So um, he's, the fund actually has almost half of its assets in European stocks right now. Wow. And so what are the kind of stocks that he's buying? Um, well, he's very, very keen on, on European financials at the minute, um, which is obviously really one of the most unloved um, yeah, areas <laughs> of, of the market. But because he's got a, a value focus, this is an area that he thinks has some interesting opportunities. And actually, he says that um, what's tended to happen in Europe, um, particularly on European financials, is that the baby's been thrown out of, with the bathwater. So because um, so many investors are just don't want to think about this area, don't really want to just have a headache of it. Um, lots of good opportunities are, are sort of being missed, he says. Because banks do seem like an area which suffer from negative interest rates, low interest rates. Mm -hmm. um, does he kind of comment on that? Um, he did. I mean, you know, sort of pressed him on that. Um, and he said that actually um, the earnings, the earnings risk is something that he thinks has been overdone a little bit. I mean, it, negative interest rates will affect banks' earnings, but he doesn't think that it's going to affect them as much as people think. And actually, um, earnings have not come back as, as strongly in terms of banks' profits um, since the financial crisis. And so he thinks actually it's it's one of the areas that is not so critically important to banks' success, um, arguably compared to capital and the level of capital that they have. So he thinks that's a bigger um, the area that investors need to be concerned about. And compared to where banks have been um, over the last few years, he thinks that they're much better prepared in terms of their level of capital. And that's why he, he likes um, particular, you know, some banks. Um, recently, he's bought the Dutch bank ING, and he said it's the first bank that the trust has actually owned for a number of years. So he, you know, he's he's going in for that. Okay, so I mean, is he just buying up all European financials? Is this a across the board positive? Um, I know he would say definitely not. Um, as he explained it to me, he was sort of looking for the, the kind of Lloyd's banks of of um, European. Uh, financials and, and banks. So he's not buying Italian or Spanish banks, for example. Okay, and the trust has reduced its charge, hasn't it? Why is that? Um, yes, the trust has reduced its charge. So at the start of um, of this month, end of last month, it merged with another Henderson Trust, um, Henderson Global Trust, which hadn't been performing very well. And um, so because of the fact that it, it's taken in, it's, it's actually doubled its, its assets um, because it included some of Henderson's assets in um, now. And so it's been able to reduce its management fee from 0.75% to 0.65%. And that overall has reduced ongoing charge to 1.11%. But the fund manager thinks that actually this is going to come down further. And next year, he's expecting um, an ongoing charge of about 0.85%. Okay, great. Um, so, Leonora, you've been researching this area as well, and you know a lot about it. Um, why is it a good idea to look beyond the UK for income? And what are the risks? Okay, well, you've probably not failed to notice that the past few months have seen loads and loads and loads of dividend cuts from UK companies. And these are like really big household names that you might know, like Barclays, Rolls-Royce, Morrison Supermarket, and, you know, some of the mining shares like BHP, Bulletin and Rio Tinto. I think what makes this even worse is it's been announced, but the effects will actually sort of bite later this year. So things um, look set to get worse. 
the other issue is the companies that are paying are fewer and fewer and fewer. Five companies alone accounted for 53% of the first quarter dividend payout. Now, if any of these gave up paying, it would it would dent the whole you know dent the whole figure. We all remember what happened to BP in 2010. It was a big dividend payout. There was a big hole in the UK scene. So I think basically it enforces the message that you need to diversify your sources of income. Look to overseas equity income as well as UK equity income. Okay, and what I mean, what kind of income level can you hope for from global equity income funds? Well, actually, really good ones. I mean, the headline yields on some of um, the foreign indices don't look good, and I think as M mentioned, it's on MCI. Well, it's something like two point seven five percent. I think on the S and P five hundred, it's even lower, something like two point two percent. But the point is, you're not buying the headline yield. If you go into an active fund, the fund manager will buy individual stocks, and within those markets are some absolutely excellent companies paying high levels. So if you buy an overseas equity income fund, you can expect to get a, a, a dividend yield of, you know, over 3% and in a lot of cases over 4%. Okay. And I mean, how should you go about choosing the fund? Do you just look at yield or are there other things? No, I mean, that's really definitely do not do that. Um, because high yields are sometimes there for a reason. When you're choosing an overseas equity income fund, or for that matter, any kind of equity income fund, go for one of good total returns. The number one reason for this is that it may offer high yield, but it could be using your capital, which really kind of leaves you in a, in a bad position. So choose a fund of good long-term total returns, see what it's made over three and five years. Now, you do also need to look at the yield and see how it compares to the fund's benchmark, because it should be paying you more than the benchmark index. And also look at the actual you know, dividend is, you know, kind of like a calculator, so yield is calculation in relation to share price. Actually look at what the dividend payments are, because that's what you're going to get, you know, your cash in hand. See how high they are. See if it's growing them over the years, because the fund needs to grow its dividend payments to keep pace with inflation. Okay, so what are some examples of good funds in this space? Okay, in the global equity income sector. It's a growing area. And I think there are three particularly good funds. Now, two of these we count among our IC top 100 funds list. And this is um, Artemis Global Income and Newton Global Income. Now, Artemis Global Income launched in 2010. It's made good returns ever since then. Um, it's got a very nice yield of about 4.2%. And it's, it's it's really well diversified. It's got about 40% of its assets in Europe, another 35% in the US, only 8% in the UK. Uh, and that's something, actually, another important thing to check, that it's not over, you know, over, over allocated to the UK, because global funds can allocate there. The point is, if you investing in it to diversify away, then there's no point duplicating what you've already got in your UK equity income funds and direct shareholdings. Um, so, you know, uh, yeah, Artemis ticks his box. It's only got 8% and it focuses on quality and cyclical shares. It's not paying too much. And Newton Global Income, slightly different approach, tends to go for the quality companies, bit more defensive um, again it's performed very well uh, and a good idea would be to hold them together so you've got you know maybe one that's a bit more aggressive one that's a bit more defensive uh, you know, but uh, you know nice complement to each other 
Okay, so don't ignore global equity income then and have a look at our top 100 funds for some more on those. Um, So finally today, we're going to talk about some potentially major news for China and emerging markets. Because index provider MSCI has until the 14th of June to decide whether or not it's going to include domestic Chinese A shares in its emerging market index. And that could actually double China exposure in the emerging market index from just over 20% to over 40% potentially over the long term. So it's going to be a big deal for anyone holding a passive emerging markets fund or really anyone holding a fund benchmarked against the MSCI emerging markets. Until now, Chinese A shares haven't been included in the index. China has a presence, but it's in foreign listed Chinese shares. And that's because of the restricted nature of China's domestic market. It's limited by quotas on foreign investment and has stock suspensions, which mean that trading halts when losses reach a certain point. The market's been really volatile. It really soared in um, early 2015, but then it's had major falls since August when there was a big stock market rout. But it has been taking steps to liberalise its market and meet MSCI's demands. And now experts seem to think it's actually a matter of time before A shares are included. So, Lynn, China does already have a presence in the index, doesn't it? And investors in emerging markets will already have exposure to China. I mean, what, what's the difference between all of these different types of shares? Well, the H shares are listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange and they're in Hong Kong dollars, priced in Hong Kong dollars. The A shares are priced in Renminbi. And you can see a huge difference in price sometimes for the same stock basically. So that tends to be um, the main difference. And also, as you said, A shares are restricted to to foreign investors as well. And are A shares different in terms of risk? Because obviously they've had massive swings both up and down. Mm. So there's a big premium discount between A and H shares. Um, And as I said, the access to the A is restricted. And a lot of it's due to supply and demand. And H shares are are influenced by global investors in the price with the supply and demand. And the suspension of the A-shares companies um, can create investor risk. So if you've got an A-share holding and they sus- the company suspends its shares, it could be months before you're able to come out of that, if indeed you can. Yeah. I mean, with, with that in mind, what how do you feel about their potential addition? Do you think they should be added or not? Yeah, I, I think they should. I mean, China's the second largest economy in the world. If they do get added, it'll be 2017. The 5% partial inclusion only means it's just over 1% of A-shares. And sorry, just to explain that, this is because MSCI is planning on staggering the inclusion, isn't yes. it? Starting at 5% and moving up to 100? Yes, yeah. um, if indeed it does get to that, to yeah. that stage. So... Um, the full potential inclusion would take China A to 18% and it would bring China H shares down to 21 but around about 40% of the index. Okay. So, I mean, do you think the addition of A shares would increase the risk of the emerging markets index or not necessarily? Um, it, it could increase, but it may be less risk if the correlation of A shares to other emerging market shares is, is wider. So, okay. And, I mean, does well, it change the way you feel about for example, passive exposure to that market or no? No, not at all. Okay, so it's just a matter of waiting and seeing what happens on the 14th of June. Okay, well, I think that's just about all we've got time for this week. Um, So it just remains for me to thank my guests, uh, Lynn Hutchinson of Charles Stanley Pan Asset, Emma Ajman and Leonora Walters. Make sure to check out this week's Top 50 ETFs and have a good weekend. (laughs) 